We're continuing our series this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. It is uh, page 230 in the Pew Bible. We're in the second week of our series, In Search of a King. And uh, some of the children were asking what my favorite ice cream flavor was. And I was not answering their question right away because I needed to get, you know, to the point of the sermon could get lost in my favorite ice cream flavor. But now's a good time for me to tell you my favorite ice cream flavor is uh, actually, if you've ever heard of Meadows ice cream or Meadows custard, uh, it's a P- Pennsylvania thing. They have a, um, a flavor called chocolate peanut butter cup. And it's just chocolate custard, but it's the best chocolate custard. And it's just peanut butter cup, but when you get it fresh, it's not all frozen and hard. It's still soft and goes up. Yeah, that's my favorite. That's my guilty pleasure. So, chocolate peanut butter cup. If you ever want to buy me some, uh, some wonderful ice cream, there you go. Um, but I'll only eat a little bit of it because of the lessons I have learned. It's daylight savings time, and uh, I know it's hard to get up the extra hour early. I, some of us are probably feeling pretty beat, especially if we've been fighting any sicknesses or anything like that. Um, but I'm, my prayer is that this morning that God's word would really speak to us in a very clear way. It's, uh, it's touching on a subject that I think is very common uh, in our times sitting in church, in our times studying God's word. It's a subject that we often talk about. And so it's very um, possible that as we go through this sermon, it has just a very plain way of speaking to us and just sounds like a sermon we've heard a hundred times. And my prayer is that that would not be the case, that God's word would speak very clearly to us in a new and fresh way, that it would encourage our hearts to maybe look a little bit closer, a little bit deeper at where we are in our walk with the Lord, and that he might begin to do a new work in our life and bring some life into places that maybe have grown dead and we haven't really realized it yet. So let me pray for us before we get into God's word this morning. Father, our prayer is to have your life come into ours. Our prayer is that our faith would not be something that is dried up and dead and tired, something that is vibrant, that brings joy and assurance, even in the midst of trying times. We want to be a people that are found Resting in your grace, trusting in your promises, and a people that has their hearts set upon you. And so as we come to your word, we ask, may your word speak to us and guide us in this way. Father, I pray for my words that I share, that only what you would have us hear would stick, and let everything else just fall away. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This series is a series looking at the uh, biblical theme of kingship. And as I said last week, kingship is a bit of a foreign concept to us. We're not used to the idea of kings and having kings in our lives. But in the ancient Near East, having a king was, was a, a big deal, especially having a great king. A great king was someone who would stand as a representative and ruler of the people. 
If you had a great king, your nation would prosper. You'd be protected. You would be uh, having injustices kept to a minimum. That was all what people were looking for in good and powerful and great kings. And you see, at the time that Israel was coming into their being as a nation, anybody who was anybody in the ancient Near East had a king. They were the rare exception. Israel was very different from any other nation. Israel did not have a king like everyone else. Ever since God birthed this people into a nation, Israel always had a leader, but they were not a king in the same sense that every other nation had a king. And this was because Israel was supposed to have God as their king. God was the one who provided for Israel. He protected Israel. He preserved Israel. He wrote their law codes. He founded their culture. He gave them their land. And God was exactly the type of king that Israel needed. He was better than any of those other types of kings. But he's not the type of king that Israel wanted. Last week we looked at one of the low points in Israel's history. When there was no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Essentially they were very content being their own kings. Doing what they saw fit. But Israel would reach out to God whenever they were in a crisis. And so they would go through the motions of saying God was their king, and they try to use God for convenience. But God would not be a king of convenience. And so God took back the throne in Israel through some difficult circumstances. We saw how God broke down their idolatry, how he wouldn't let them just think he's a God that could be manipulated to come through for them whenever they needed him or wanted him to. But he wanted their whole heart and not just part of it. And so he made them understand he was not the type of king who could be served half-heartedly. And it was after God did this work, he eventually sent Samuel as the mediator to lead the people back to God through true repentance. When they finally had a picture of the God that they needed, they were ready to accept him on his terms. And Samuel was the mediator that cried out on their behalf, and God answered And by the way that chapter 7 ends, it seems like things are going very well for Israel. God is ruling in Israel once again. There's peace in the land. The cities that the enemies had taken, the Philistines have taken, were restored. And so that's the setting of where we left off. And we're going to pick things up at 1 Samuel chapter 8. Listen now to God's word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Now, I just want to pause here and make one comment. The names of Samuel's sons have significance. Joel means Yahweh is God, and Abijah means Yahweh is my father. So very powerful names that he gave to his sons. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the, king, or, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, 
Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are now also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them. Show them the way of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, there, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint, to them, appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. And he'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and and olive orchards, and he'll give them for his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, and he'll give it to his officers and his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and he'll put them to work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you'll cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, there will be a king over us, that we may be also like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, And go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its truth on our hearts this morning. I have to admit, this is one of those chapters in Scripture that uh, confused me for a long time when I read it. It confused me for a couple reasons. One, it seems like Israel is acting with some good intentions, right? Things leave off. They're walking with the Lord in chapter 7. Chapter 8 begins, Samuel's getting old, and the two sons that he appointed as judges are bums. They're bums. They're perverting justice. They're taking bribes. And so it seems like Israel has a legitimate concern. They're making this request with a good reason. You know, Samuel's not going to live forever. Your, your kids are bums, Samuel. So give us a real king to judge us. And it seems like they have a valid point. And also, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that kings were long foretold uh, to be a part of Israel's future. So this isn't a surprise that they're asking for a king. When Abraham was being promised that he'd be made into a great nation, God said, kings will come from you. Whenever Moses was laying out the law for Israel, he said that one day when you enter the promised land, you will raise for yourself, or or God will choose for you a king. You will request a king. God will choose from among you a king like all the other nations. Even that word is used in Deuteronomy 17. And then, of course, if we know our biblical history, we know that David is a great king in Israel's history, 
And there's a promise that one in David's line will reign forever. So it seems like a king would be a a good thing to ask for. And so it's hard to see what the problem is. But I think we can look a little bit deeper. Because obviously Samuel and God are displeased by this. There's something that they're asking for. There's something that they're doing that God says they're rejecting him and his kingship. So obviously that we might be missing something. There might be something lying beneath the surface. The treason that is taking place must be more subtle. So let's look at it a little bit here. The elders are complaining about the corruption and bribery of Samuel's sons. Now this seems like one of those good parts, right? Like they have a credible cause. The elders see Samuel's wicked sons and they're displeased with them. It seems like a legitimate threat. But let's think about this for a second. So we have a scenario where either all of Israel is still faithful and walking with the Lord and obedient to God, but Samuel's two sons are bums, or is the scenario that Samuel's sons are par for the course, that they actually represent the general spiritual malaise that has begun to take hold in Israel once again? We really think that Israel is just completely innocent in this, but Samuel's sons are the ones that are corrupt, or are they actually just representative of what had happened? That Israel got comfortable and ceased walking in the fear of the Lord. Let's face it, how could they take bribes and pervert justice if everyone around them wanted to follow the Lord? Who's bribing them? Somebody is. And so the elders are not simply calling out this great sin that's happening, but they're using it as an opportunity to exercise their own sin. They see it as an opportunity to ask for something that they want. You noticed that they're not crying out to God and asking for a new leader. They're not asking God to cleanse and heal the leadership that's broken in their land. No, they say, you know what, we're, we're at a point now where we're really ready for a king. Every other nation has a king. Every other nation has an army. It's time for us to get on, get on board. We've got to keep up with the Joneses of whatever age this is, middle bronze, late bronze, something like that. Why did they want a king? There was something about their lives that was leaving them dissatisfied. What was it? We have one clue. They say they wanted a king like other nations. I think Israel had grown so comfortable and they felt like they were so secure as a nation that they now felt like they could go on without God's help. And they didn't want to have to be a a nation that depended completely upon God. They didn't like that position of vulnerability. The thing we have to remember about Israel is they were a nation that was utterly and totally dependent on God for everything. Even if you look at Israel, where it's located on a map, geographically, surrounded by superpowers, this tiny little pathway of land, that's the only way to get through that region. How were they to withstand all of the armies that wanted to come through and take hold of that piece of property? God placed them in this very fragile, very unstable place to be. 
But if he was their king, he could keep them absolutely there and keep them absolutely secure. Well, so they enjoyed that security for a while, right? Samuel led them in repentance. They had this security. Now that they were secure, now that they had peace in their land, well, now it's time we get a king. It's time to upgrade. And so that's what they wanted. They didn't want to be seen as this little nation that had no armies. They didn't want to live with the threat of other nations coming in always at their borders. They didn't want to have to depend on God to get them through that. It's really interesting. It's almost like it didn't matter that the God of the universe had placed his favor on them. They were dissatisfied with being that kind of people. They wanted to be a strong people. They didn't like the way they looked. They didn't like the way they felt. They didn't want to be weak and insignificant anymore. They wanted a new identity, a new name and reputation. They wanted a king like all the other nations. And so they wanted a king who would do this thing for them. They said to judge us, but also they said to go before us and to fight our battles. The picture in Israel's mind is that this king would live to serve them. That his goal would be their victory and their success. They did not want a king, as God had disclosed in Deuteronomy 17, a king that would keep them close to God. See, in Deuteronomy 17, the picture of the king is not a king that serves the people, but a king that serves the living God, the true king. The king was always to serve God on behalf of the people. but That's not the prescription of king that Israel wants. Israel wants a king that would serve them, that would accomplish what they wanted. They were displeased with where they were with God, and so they made their request to Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations. And now that they were at peace, they thought they were ready for level two. And so Israel took this good thing, kingship, but they twisted it, they manipulated it. They wanted to get something from it that it was never meant to produce for them. And God warns them through Samuel, if you pursue this, it will make you a slave. If you really think this king is going to win your battles for you, do you know what it's going to take from you? It's going to take your family, your sons, your daughters. It's going to take your grain. It's going to take your produce, your harvest, your lands. And Samuel ends by saying, he will make you a slave. If you really want this king to deliver on those promises, it'll actually turn you into a slave, just trying to make it work. But Israel is adamant. They know what they want. It illustrates for us, sometimes education doesn't lead to transformation, does it? Information doesn't always lead to heart change. The picture that Samuel paints is pretty grim, but their hearts are set. They don't believe that that's actually what will happen. They think somehow a king can do this for them, a king that they want. I think it's often easy for us to look down at Israel in moments like this and think, man, these guys were idiots. (laughs) Clearly, did they actually think that that wasn't going to come true? They know who they were talking with. And it's so easy for us to have this moment where we just get very arrogant all of a sudden and we think, man, Israel just doesn't have it together. 
We would never be so petty as to be like Israel, would we? We would never get to a point in our life where we're so comfortable with where God has us that we could begin to look to something else to take us to that next level. We're way too smart to let that happen to us, right? Could it be that we're more like Israel than we want to admit? How many times have we done what Israel has done in not so many words? How many times have we done what Israel has done where they've been to the same place where Israel is spiritually, where we get comfortable But we grow dissatisfied with something and we think that there's something better out there for us that we can get. We're tired of how people see us. We don't feel important. We don't feel loved. We don't feel accepted. We don't feel respected. You name it. There's some sort of feeling of need that we have. And instead of depending and trusting in God and being his people, trusting that even though that's the thing we feel that we want, it's not the thing that we need, we decide to make something else a king so that we might get it. And we think that if we just had this circumstance change, then we would be fine. We look to this good thing and we think if we can just kind of get that thing working for us, then, then we'd really be cool. God, I, I feel really great that you love me, that you're caring for me, that I'm your child, but man, if I could just have the respect my father, then I'd be set. If I just knew that I could be wanted by somebody, that somebody would find me desirable as a husband or as a wife, if I just knew that somebody could be interested in me or or think that I'm important, I'll give you a couple examples of how we can start to look to other things and make them kings. How that actually turns us into slaves. You've got to start with an easy one, low-hanging fruit, money. Money can be a king in many of our lives. And money is a good thing. Money is a gift that God has given for human flourishing. Money is actually something that God has given to us to draw us closer to him. The wealth and assets that we have are to... Help us understand that everything comes from him. We can do all kinds of good with money. But how many times does Jesus talk about the dangers that come with money? He talks more about money than he does about sexual immorality. There must be something to that. Money can be used to do a lot of things. Good things. It can buy food. It can pay for our needs of transportation and shelter. It can help others in times of need. There are lots of good uses for money. But the importance of money and how it can be used can be elevated in our minds so easily. And we can take something that's good and we can try to use it to fill that void very quickly. You've heard the expression, money can't buy happiness, but there's a myth Some of us believe money could. That if all of a sudden we weren't scrimping and saving to make ends meet week to week, then we'd really be happy. 
We believe that money can buy security. Some of us might even think that money is power, that if I had enough money, I could influence people, that I could be somebody, that people would find me important because of the way that I can support a cause. And what's common with all of these attitudes that we might take towards money, it puts an over-dependence on money to achieve something for us. That's how we make it a king. We put an over-dependence on it. We trust it to achieve something for us. We identify ourselves with the outcome. And when money has that place in your life, you become a slave to it. You're always serving money to try to get it to work that way for you. It's the same way with relationships. Like money, relationships are a good thing. They're given by God for human flourishing. Relationships are a good thing designed to bring us closer to God. But when we take that good thing and we twist it to achieve something for us, then that's when it becomes our master. We might want a relationship to give us happiness. We might look to a relationship to give us security. We might look to a relationship to give us an identity, to show people that we're somebody. There's all sorts of things, good things, that God has given to us. But you see, if relationships have that place in your life, where you depend on them for your security or your identity, where you're looking to them as the validation of your happiness, you become a slave to them. Because when that relationship stops performing, you'll do whatever you can to get it to perform that way again. And it's the same way with Israel and this king. Israel wanted the king to accomplish something for them. They wanted the king to work for them. It wasn't the king that they needed, but it's the king that they wanted. And what Samuel was trying to explain to the people was, if you want the king to do this for you, it's going to suck the life out of you. You're going to become a slave. This king is going to require so many resources to have this army, so many resources to establish this kind of security for you. Don't you know that God can already give you all of that and not require all of that from you? How many times does God warn us through Scripture about the dangers of trying to find our value in anything other than Him? And yet, our hearts betray us so subtly sometimes. Just like Israel, the information and the education doesn't lead to transformation. We need God's help. We need His help to help us see that the thing we want is often not the thing that we need. We must ask the Holy Spirit to show us where is it in our lives that we have a growing discontent? Where is it in your life that you are most like Israel, where you feel there is a weakness, where you're starting to feel dissatisfied, where you're starting to say, if I just had that. And what are those things that you think would get you that? What are those things? Sometimes they're hard for us to see. Sometimes we're very good at couching them in the right language sanctifying the requests that we're making for this new king. It's really interesting. If you look at Deuteronomy 17, it says that you'll have a king like the other nations. It's exactly the words that the elders use in this passage. 
but they meant something far different from what God was outlining in Deuteronomy 17. So we gotta ask ourselves, what good thing? Is there a romance or a relationship? Is it a job? Is it money? Is it a ministry? What is it? What good thing are we looking to? We want to use it to serve us and to make us feel like we're something, like we matter, like we're important. It's so interesting. Israel had all the favor of the living God of the universe, not because they were great, but because they were his. And their hearts were discontented with that favor. They wanted the admiration of all the nations. And we would be fooling ourselves to think we're not tempted in the same way. It's really elementary, this lesson. God's very clear from the moment he instituted Israel, no other gods. God says, serve nothing else but me. I am your king. It's lesson one. And yet it's lesson one million that we learn over and over again as we try to pull God off the throne and put something else in its place. Thinking that thing is going to serve us and all it does is put us into slavery. Thankfully, God in his grace allows us sometimes, just like he promised Israel. In that day, you will cry out because of your king. He allows us to realize the emptiness of the kings that we put up in thrones, how they can't accomplish for us what we need. And when that happens, thankfully, in his grace, he gives us a king that we do need in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your amazing patience with us. Father, you love us more than we could possibly know. You have favor on us that we do not deserve. And yet, whenever we become comfortable, Lord, you know the weakness of our hearts, the weakness that we have to want just another thing to look for some sort of satisfaction and find it through some other means that our hearts are not fully satisfied in you. Lord, it's such a a typical sermon. It's such a lesson we hear all the time in the church. Help our hearts not to be hardened against it. Help them to be soft. We ask, Holy Spirit, reveal to us any place where we have thrown Jesus off of the throne of our hearts and we've put in another king. Father, we pray for deliverance that we would not care about how others view us, that we would not fall into patterns of anxiety and worry, that we would not desire to have a a feeling of self-reliance and dependence. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be broken and that we would see the kings that we thought we have wanted and needed are not the kings that we need.
And help us to see Jesus Christ as the true king. The one who sets us free from slavery so that we might live in righteousness and enjoy all the blessings that you desire to give to your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.